Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmire. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Step right up, step right up, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome back to Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker, Part 2. Today we continue with the disturbing and horrifying story of Richie and follow his savage and bloody trail as he goes from West Texas Drifter to the feared and terrible Valley Intruder and the Walk-In Murderer and is penultimately dubbed The Night Stalker before finally becoming the Death Row Romeo. So buckle up, keep your hands and feet in the ride at all times, and get ready for one wild, wild ride on Murder Coaster. Let's begin. Act One, A Growing Menace. In May of 1985, Detective Gil Carrillo of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Homicide Division had a strange feeling that a cluster of seemingly unrelated murders could have all been committed by the same person. But when Detective Carrillo started telling his colleagues he thought that the Zazara murders, so savage a pair of eyes had been ripped from the victims, were committed by the same person who committed the Dale Okazaki and Veronica Yu murders, who had been randomly shot, most of them laughed in his face. The only evidence supporting that theory was that all the crimes had been committed with a twenty-two, but ballistics had been unable to either confirm or deny that it was the same gun used in the Zazara murders. A lot of people get shot with twenty-twos in Los Angeles, and the Okazaki and Yu murders had happened in the middle of the day for no profit. The Zazara murders involved a robbery at night, and the sadistic elements were much stronger. Actual rape, torture, and mutilation. But something about these crimes just struck Detective Carrillo as coming from the same criminal, though he couldn't put his finger on why. He told his sergeant, legendary homicide detective Frank Salerno, about his hunch. Salerno had been the head of the Hillside Stranglers Task Force and had an uncanny knowledge of serial killers. Salerno neither agreed nor disagreed with Carrillo, simply said there was no way of knowing at this point. But regardless, the Zazara killer had left some big clues, namely footprints. They were everywhere, in the garden, in the backyard, and these prints would link the culprit to other crimes, but not murders. The footprints matched those of the perpetrator of three child abductions, where the children were taken from their homes in the middle of the night, molested, and then let go free. They'd been going on all winter. On February 25th, in Montevillo, a six-year-old girl had been taken from a schoolyard, molested, and abandoned. On March 11th, in Monterey Park, a nine-year-old boy was taken from his bed, molested and abandoned. And on March 20th, in Glassell Park, an eight-year-old girl was taken from her bed, 
assaulted in a car and abandoned. Could the same person be kidnapping children from their homes to molest, randomly shooting passerbys he targets on the freeway, and breaking into houses at night to rob and murder? Only one man thought it was possible. Homicide Detective Gil Carrillo of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And the rest of the department openly laughed at him. Just one of his colleagues there even considered it, Sergeant Salerno. And even he thought it was a very slim chance. But Detective Gil Carrillo had put all the witness descriptions they had together. And they matched. A tall, thin, Hispanic man with disheveled hair, dressed entirely in black, often in a members-only type jacket, with a horrible odor and bad teeth. If Detective Carrillo's hunch was right, that meant they had a serial killer on their hands, the likes of which they'd never seen before, targeting victims of all ages, males and females, allowing some to live, others to die, sometimes killing men as well as women, sometimes engaging in robbery, sometimes not, sometimes committing sexual assaults, sometimes not, sometimes using a knife, sometimes using a gun. And so it was in the spring of 1985 in Los Angeles, California. Act Two, A Prowler in the Night. On May 14th, 1985, like a vampire, Richard Ramirez awoke as the sun began to crest and set and darkness descended on the land. He walked out of the Cecil Hotel into the burgeoning Los Angeles night, the streets coming alive with the drug dealers, panhandlers, and sex workers of Skid Row. He turned left and stopped at Margarita's restaurant on 7th for their all-day breakfast and ate some bacon and eggs. He then played pool at Yeehaw Billiard Parlor, trying to hustle up a little action. There wasn't any to be had that day, so he rolled himself a joint and smoked it as he walked down Broadway listening to ACDC's Highway to Hell album on repeat, over and over, reveling in the song Night Prowler. He stopped at the Cameo Theater, getting a ticket and slipping inside. The place showed porn 24 hours a day. It was a nice place to relax and chill out. He'd even slept there before, dozing to the moaning and grunting from the speakers. Porn used to really get him off, get him excited. But now it was getting boring. What got him off sexually now was violence, murder, having someone captive and seeing the fear in their eyes. As he himself said, It's like nothing else. You can't explain its intensity in words. To have that power over life, nothing is more sexually exciting. It's the ultimate, something very few people experience. And once the sky outside had completely darkened into night, he left the porn theater, skulking the streets of Los Angeles. He slinks past the Alexandria Hotel, where he sees a Toyota parked in the shadows. Using a passkey he'd acquired from a crony, he steals the car and pulls out onto the freeway, scanning the night and on the prowl. He gets off the freeway at Monterey Park, the neighborhood where he'd killed Veronica Yu, cruising the quiet streets, waiting for that magic time of 2 a.m. when people fall into their deepest state of sleep. 
the perfect time to attack. He shut off the engine and lights and drifted along the suburban lane, silently coming to a stop on Trumbauer Avenue. Ears and eyes alert to the night, he tucked his pants into his socks so that he wouldn't get caught on anything, slipped on his gardening gloves, then slunk from the car, ducking into the shadows of some overhanging trees, and then started walking south on Trumbar until he came to the home of 66-year-old William Doy and his 56-year-old invalid wife, Lillian. The night was perfect, moonless and overcast, the sky like slate, not a star to be seen in the blanket of overhead darkness. A slight rain began to patter down. Richard loved the rain. People didn't go out in the rain, and it helped muffle the sound of gunshots. He crept around the large garage with the basketball hoop, along the side of the house and into the backyard. There were a pair of sliding glass doors, and he gave them a try but they were locked. He eyed the windows and could see there were alarm wires leading to them. But he noticed one small window that was already open, just covered with a screen. He cut the screen, then quietly pried it off and climbed through the window into a rear bathroom. Once inside, he ducked down low and waited, listening for any sound, trying to sense any movement. All was perfectly still. No one had heard him climb in. The hall light was on, and it was easy to see. He slipped into a bedroom and found Lillian Doy sleeping, a wheelchair by her bed, then went to the next bedroom where Bill Doy was sleeping. Seeing the man, Richard raised his pistol and chambered around, but the click woke Bill, who sprung up and reached for his own gun, which was on the nightstand beside him. Richard... Seeing Bill go for his gun, shot him in the face, just above the upper lip, the bullet going right through his tongue, tumbling up and slightly damaging the brain before becoming lodged in the upper throat. Richard tried to shoot him again, but the gun jammed. Cursing, he cleared the chamber, ejecting the shell onto the floor where it would later be found by investigators. The commotion and gunshot awoke Lillian in the other room. But she was an invalid and couldn't move, could only lie there and listen as her husband gurgled incoherently for mercy as Richard Ramirez began to beat him with his gloved fists, knocking him unconscious and kicking his head when he slumped over, passed out. Richard then grabbed Bill's gun from the nightstand and headed into Lillian's bedroom, telling her, Shut up or I'll kill you, bitch. He then secured her hands with thumb cuffs before ransacking the place, stealing their wedding rings and Lillian's father's pocket watch, stuffing it all into a pillowcase. As Richard pillaged through the house, Bill came too and began moaning. So Richard went back to his room and beat him unconscious again, stimulated by the rush of violence, fully worked up and reaching a frenzied state now. Richard went to the invalid woman and raped her, screaming in her face, don't look at me. When he was finished, he kissed her and strolled out the front door, leaving her there in thumb cuffs. Bill actually came to again. This guy was a fighter and was determined to get help for his invalid wife, and he managed to get to the phone and call 911 and somehow say, help, please help. 
before passing out again. This guy has been shot point blank in the face. The bullet went through his tongue and tumbled around in his head. He'd been beaten unconscious repeatedly, but he is still going. True hero. Firefighters and paramedics soon arrived, but unfortunately, William Doy would die on the ambulance ride to the hospital. Richard was very aware that by committing crimes in different districts, the separate law enforcement agencies would not share their information. And sure enough, when Monterey police arrive, there's those distinctive shoe prints all over. But they don't share this information with the homicide detectives at the sheriff's department. And no one realizes that this crime is part of all the others with those shoe prints. Two weeks later, Richard, most likely feeling invincible and protected by the devil, as he wandered out from Los Angeles in a stolen Mercedes, out into the desert and hills like a coyote, on the hunt for something easy to kill, smelling the early summer air, asking the night where to go, ending up in the town of Monrovia, going to its outskirts and up a long, twisting road called North Alta Vista, rising up half a mile to the home of 83-year-old Mabel Bell, and her 81-year-old invalid sister, Florence Lang, whom everyone called Nettie. Ma Bell, as everyone called Mabel, had moved to California from Oklahoma, where she'd never locked her door. She kept up the practice in California, saying she didn't want to live in a world where you had to lock your doors at night. Little did she know, a monster, a self-created demon, was on the hunt. How he found this home... No one knows. He didn't use a map, relied on instinct, chose at random, and somehow just went down this out-of-the-way, twisty road in the foothills of the Sierra Madre Mountains. Yeah, this is terrifying. If demons, demon possession, evil, if all that shit exists, this is it. Richard, literally praying to the devil, asking the devil to guide him, stops at this random house puts on his gloves, walks right up to the front door, turns the unlocked knob, and walks inside. He just walks right on in. He surveys the place, then goes to the kitchen, rummages in a drawer, and comes up with a hammer. Then goes to the bedroom of Nettie Lang, where he swings the claw end of the hammer into her skull, sinking it into her brain before bounding her hands with a cord from an alarm clock as she lay there, moaning. He then goes into Ma Bell's room and strikes her in the head with the hammer. She wakes up, screaming, looks at him and says, I have no money, to which he hits her with the hammer again, with such force that it sends brain matter spattering across the room. He binds her feet with electrical tape, strapping her spread eagle to the bed, rips off her nightgown, and using the frayed wires of a plugged-in electrical cord, shocks her repeatedly before raping her and drawing an inverted pentagram on her thigh with lipstick. Evidently pleased with himself, he draws another pentagram on the wall above her, swearing allegiance to the devil. Going back into the bedroom of Nettie Lang, he draws an inverted pentagram and red lipstick on the wall there, as well, thanking Lucifer again for guiding him on this totally random and utterly senseless crime. 
There's no rhyme or reason to it. Just completely random mayhem and death. There's nothing much of any value, but he grabs some costume jewelry, a cheap watch, and a cassette player, stuffing it all in a bloody pillowcase. Eats a banana, drinks a Mountain Dew, and takes off into the desert night. It's fucking so scary. The very next night, May 30th, 1985, he's still driving the stolen Mercedes, cruising the streets of Burbank, the home of NBC and, and Disney, lurking by areas close to the freeway. Tonight, Richard is excited to have some new toys with him, a pair of handcuffs and a 25 automatic to add to his 22 revolver. When the night told him a place felt right, he pulled to a stop and crept to a random house, looked it up and down, all the windows shut and locked with alarm wires leading to them. But there was a tiny door for a puppy, like some kind of X-Files creature or postmodern Lovecraft tentacle monster. He slunk his arm and shoulder into the small opening, hand slithering up to the deadbolt and unlocking it, then letting himself in. Inside was 42-year-old Carol Kiley and her 11-year-old son. He woke Carol up by shining a flashlight in her eyes and saying, Wake up, bitch. Richard Ramirez then proceeded to terrorize Carol and her son, forcing them into a closet and handcuffing them together while he ransacked the house, then taking them to the bedroom and covering them with a sheet, which oh, is so frightening. I'm sure she thought he was going to kill them both. Just that agony of sitting there with a sheet over you. Mm. He then put them back in the closet, then dragged Carol out by her hair, sexually assaulting her until dawn. But he let her live, as well as her son. She said, The look in his eyes was absolutely demonic. Never had I seen eyes like his on a human being. He told her she was lucky to be alive, that he'd killed before. He then asked her for directions to the freeway. And he actually thought he was in Glendale and didn't even realize he was in Burbank. And she gave him the directions and he walked on out the front door. She would describe him as a light-skinned Mexican that was good-looking but had bad teeth and a horrible rotten odor like dirty, wet leather. Legendary homicide detective Frank Salerno needed a new partner. So in May, he asked the ambitious new guy, Gil Carrillo, the big Latino with the goofy smile, to be his partner. And Gil was ecstatic. Salerno was a hero to him. They celebrated the event at Emmy Lou's bar and Chinese restaurant. Just the next day, they were called to the murder of Patty Elaine Higgins of Arcadia, a 28-year-old schoolteacher, blonde and beautiful. The killer had broken in by breaking a window pane in the back door. He'd beaten her, sexually assaulted her, and cut her throat with the stab and slash method, stabbing the knife into her neck and cutting across, hitting both corroded arteries and the windpipe, nearly decapitating her. There were no shoe prints, no bullet casings, but the two detectives knew it was him, that the same monster had done this crime as well. They could feel it in their bones. And the killer hit Arcadia again just a few days later, entering the home of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon. He beat her with a lamp before cutting her throat 
with that same stab and slash technique. When Frank and Gil saw the cutthroat, they immediately knew it was the same killer. But this time, there were those telltale shoe prints proving it and linking all of the crimes together. There's no denying it now. There's a serial killer on the loose in Los Angeles, the likes of which the world had never seen before. Richard, meanwhile, is going ballistic, acting utterly impulsively. He sees a woman walking down the street as he drives by. So he pulls over and tries to just throw her into his car. She fights him off, gets away, and calls the police. So a bulletin goes out about the white Toyota. He gets pulled over by a motorcycle cop, doesn't have a license. The guy has him sitting on the hood questioning him. The cop says to him, Hey, you're not that guy killing people in their homes, are you? No way, man. When are you guys going to catch that motherfucker? Oh, we'll get him. Hope so. Are you sure you're not him? Hey, man, it's not me. Come on. And then I imagine the cop saying something like, Okay, pinky promise then, bro. I mean it. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I know. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the cop goes back to his motorcycle to radio in the fake name Richard gave. And Richard, as he draws an inverted pentagram on the hood, hears radio dispatch telling the cop that the Toyota is stolen and to arrest the driver. So Richard just hops over the guardrail, scampers out into the desert like a fucking jackrabbit or coyote or something, and is gone. When detectives Carrillo and Salerno hear about the attempted abduction, the pentagram, and the description of the perpetrator, their ears perked right up sounded just like their man. So Sheriff's Homicide tells LAPD they want to dust the car for fingerprints, especially that pentagram drawn on the hood, and process the vehicle for evidence. But LAPD tells them they'll take care of it and report back later once the vehicle's been processed. And they never do. By the time Sheriff's Homicide gets to the car, it's been sitting in the hot summer sun for weeks. All of the fingerprints have burned off. But they are able to find a dentist appointment slip for a dentist in Chinatown. They go to the dentist and discover they were only days short of missing him. If they'd been able to process the car for evidence earlier, they would have nabbed him. But the dentist tells the detectives that the suspect is going to be coming back. He's got really badly infected teeth. So Sheriff's Homicide has undercover officers stake out the dentist's office, waiting for their suspect to come back. But as time passes, it's deemed too expensive to keep undercover officers sitting around the dentist's office. So they have a buzzer installed, telling the dentist that when the suspect arrives, to ring the buzzer and it will alert the police. Richard shows up. The dentist frantically hits the buzzer over and over, wondering nervously when the police are going to barge in. But they never do. Somehow the connection to the police was broken. They missed their man, and he managed to get away again. To say detectives Carrillo and Salerno are pissed off at this point is an extreme understatement. So close, so many times. It's, it's fucking crazy. Which brings us to Act Two, the hottest summer on record. In June, Richard went to a random home jammed a screwdriver into a window and pried it open, only to hear a woman's voice call out, 
Honey, did you just open the window? Realizing he'd lost his greatest asset, that of surprise on sleeping people, cowardly Richard slinked back to his car and sped away. But he left a perfect print of his shoes in their garden. The house he was attempting to break into was actually that of a sheriff's deputy, and he was only blocks away from Detective Gil Carrillo's mother's house. It was all becoming very personal now. Detective Carrillo went to his lieutenant, Tony Toomey, and told him he thought all of these crimes were done by the same person. The abducted and molested children, the random shootings, the robberies and rapes, using the shoe prints to make his case. Lieutenant Toomey is skeptical, thinking it's far-fetched at best. Serial killers have a certain victim type and a certain modus operandi. They don't attack multiple ages and ethnic groups using different weapons every time. Probably just multiple criminals who happen to be wearing the same brand shoes. So Detective Carrillo started hitting shoe stores to find out more information on the shoe print. While many shoes at the time shared the same soles, this particular shoe did not. The print was unique from an Avia shoe, which was a rare shoe at the time not like Nike or Puma or Adidas. Avia had just started manufacturing. So this is the old school days before the internet, a time of actual feet on the ground investigating. So criminalist Gary Burke from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office flew up to Portland, Oregon to speak to the inventor of the Avia shoe, one Jerry Stobofield. Stobofield told the criminologist that the soles came from an aerobic shoe, not a running or basketball shoe, and they were a size 11 and a half. They studied the spreadsheets to determine the shoe's origin. On January 9th, 1985, 1,356 pairs of model 440 Avias entered the United States from Taiwan. They were only six black 11 and a halfs manufactured. Five of them went to Arizona, and only one pair came to Los Angeles. So, there was only one black pair of 11.5 Avia Model 440 in Los Angeles. And Detective Carrillo felt very certain there was also just one killer committing these crimes. Pictures of the Avia shoes were sent to all 63 police jurisdictions in Los Angeles County. Find the shoes, find the killer. Three nights later, in Sierra Madra, Richard Ramirez broke into a house and bludgeoned a 16-year-old girl, Whitney Bennett, with a tire iron while she was sleeping. Her parents, soundly asleep in another room, had no idea an intruder had even broken into their home until dawn when their daughter came to and began screaming. No one was safe. The girl had been struck over 20 times and needed 478 stitches. Richard would later say he attempted to strangle her with a phone cord but her soul rose up in a blue mist and sparks began to fly and he felt the power of Jesus was stopping him. He left behind the distinct avia shoe print in blood on the girl's comforter. Oh, God. Gil and Salerno go to their captain, Bob Grimm, and lay it all out. The avia shoe prints, the matching descriptions, the foul smell, bad teeth, the thumb cuffs, the disabled phones, the ransacking, the similarities in wounds, particularly the stab and slash, the matching bullet casings, the cloth gloves that were worn at all the crimes, 
how the evidence overlapped, linking all the crimes together like a spider's web. Captain Grimm agreed with the detectives. The evidence of these crimes being perpetrated by one suspect was now absolutely overwhelming, and Grimm gives permission for Salerno and Carrillo to form a 200-member task force. Somehow, the information about the shoe prints is leaked to KNBC-TV news reporter Laurel Erickson, who goes to the detectives to confirm. Gill and Salerno beg her not to go public with the information, saying it was a vital clue that could lead to the killer's capture and offer her an exclusive interview if she agrees not to talk about the shoe prints. She agrees and dubs Richard Ramirez by the name The Walk-In Killer. Richard sees the news release and, realizing he's being profiled, starts slicking his hair back and wearing white-framed glasses as a way to hide his identity. He probably should have taken a shower and brushed his teeth if he wanted to appear different, but, you know, (laughs) what do I know? Five days later, he entered the window of 60-year-old Joyce Nelson in Monterey Park. She knew about the killer, had discussed him with her son, who told her she needed to put bars in her windows. But she'd refused, saying, I'll not be a prisoner in my own home. Richard discovered her dozing on the sofa in front of the television. He beat her to death, stomping on her head and kicking her so hard, he left the signature Avia shoe print on her face, then grabbed some jewelry and casually walked out the front door. But he wasn't done. From there, he went directly to the home of Sophie Dickman. Sophie Dickman, a 63-year-old psychiatric nurse, awoke, sensing movement, and opened her eyes to see Richard Ramirez running at her, full speed. He slammed his gloved hand over her mouth, hissing at her. Don't look at me. Don't make a sound or I'll kill you. She said his eyes were inhuman pools of blackness. He put a pillowcase over her head and handcuffed her to the bed, sexually assaulted her, and demanded to know where all her jewelry was while he ransacked the house. When she said, I swear to God, there's nothing else, he told her, No, swear to Satan. He filled a pillowcase with her belongings and walked out the front door leaving her alive and handcuffed to the bed. Two attacks in one night. He's in berserker mode. Now the press are really picking up on the story of a serial killer on the loose. It's all over the news, morning, noon, and night. While KNBC is still calling him the walk-in killer, the other news stations start using the moniker the Valley Intruder to describe him. News of the missing eyes and brutal assaults and torture has spread worldwide. Reporters from Japan, Europe, Mexico were all in Los Angeles covering the story and would appear at the crime scenes now. And the populace is going into full-on panic. Guard dogs, deadbolts, window gates, and alarm systems all selling out. The owner of a gun store in Northridge said, I had wall-to-wall people up to the ceiling wanting guns for protection. I never saw anything like it. Newspapers ran editorials demanding answers. 
Mayor Tom Bradley, Sheriff Block, and Police Chief Daryl Gates all gave press conferences, promising they were putting all their recourses into the investigation and would work tirelessly to track down L.A.'s newest serial killer. July 7th, 1985 was the hottest day in 100 years. 106 degrees at noon. Richard sat in a roach-infested hotel room. The windows, gray smudges of grime, smoking weed and reading newspaper articles about himself over and over. He liked the press. It made him feel powerful and special. He thought of Jack the Ripper, how he had captivated him as a child, later saying, The fog, the long black cape, had a power, a threatening connotation that I wanted to make my own. Richard wanted to take it to a new level, to give the press something to really write about. He wanted to chop off some heads and leave them on the victim's front lawn. Now that would be a sight. Decapitated heads on neatly manicured suburban lawns. But he needed something he could really hack a body with, removing the head and limbs. He needed a machete. So he walked over to Russ Cutlery, and bought himself an industrial machete. He then used his passkey to go steal another Toyota and headed out, choosing to go north this time, up to Glendale, the third largest city in Los Angeles County, only six miles from the city but ringed by the Verdugo Mountains. He swung off the freeway and cruised the quiet streets lined with palm, eucalyptus, cypress, and acai trees, finally pulling to a stop at Stanley Avenue and Zur Court, shutting off the engine and lights, listening to the night. A fog rolled in, hanging above the sidewalk, enveloping the stolen car. He considered it a good omen, just like his hero, Jack the Ripper. He chose a completely random house, the home of Max and Leela Needing, and slipped in through an open set of screened-in French doors. After surveying the house, he marched up to the couple, sleeping peacefully in their bed, kicked the bed frame and screamed, Rise and shine, motherfuckers! He hit Max in the neck with the machete, somehow expecting his head to just topple right off, but it just put a huge gash into his throat. He then swung the machete at Leela and realized it was a cumbersome weapon, so he pulled out his twenty-five automatic and shot Max in the head, point blank, instantly killing him, and then shot Leela in the face three times. He began to hack at them with the machete, but then heard a call for shots fired on a police scanner he brought with him and bolted out into the fog, carrying his bloody machete in one hand, a pillowcase of stolen loot in the other. He then drove even further north to Sun Valley, a place far enough from Los Angeles to make the residents feel safe. He stopped on Charbon Street, picked a random house, went to the backyard, and slid open the unlocked sliding glass doors, silently slithered into the house like a snake into water. The house belonged to the Kovanath family. A 32-year-old some kid Kovanath was sleeping on the sofa in the den. He put his gun to her head and his hand over her mouth and told her if she made a sound, he'd kill her. He surveilled the house, seeing the two children sleeping in their rooms and Chaina Rong in the master bedroom, snoring loudly. He quickly walked up to Chaina Rong and shot him behind the ear, 
point blank, instantly killing him, then covered him with a blanket. He walked back to where some kid lay on the sofa, petrified with fear, noticing she had taken her wedding ring off and hidden it, saying, Don't play games, bitch. Where's the ring? She showed him where she'd hidden the ring. Richard then bound her, brought her to the bedroom, and assaulted her on the bed beside her dead husband. Then an alarm clock went off in the eight-year-old boy's room. Richard went and bound him, gagging him with a sock, and sexually assaulted him as well. He returns to Somkid, beating and threatening her until she gave him a hidden cache of diamonds, emeralds, and jewelry. When he demanded money, she said there was no money, only jewels. And he demanded she swear to Satan she was telling the truth. He left her tied to the bed. She'd later say, His eyes were like an animal's. They weren't human. So brutal, so mean, so cruel. For investigators, this was a conclusive crime that tied everything together. Husband, executed. Wife, bound, beaten, and assaulted. House, ransacked, and robbed. Sexual assault on a minor. Devil worshipping. It had an element from every case so far. And those distinct avia shoe prints were all over the place. It solidified the many... MOs and signatures of the perpetrator. Also, the casings from the 25 automatic have a distinctive red line around the base, a new clue. A composite was drawn of a tall, skinny Hispanic man with large eyes and hollow cheeks, bad teeth, and a foul odor. An $80,000 reward was put out for information, leading to his arrest. Someone had to know something. And then the Herald Examiner wrote about the crimes and the serial killer on the loose, calling him the Night Stalker, a name that would instantly stick and that every newspaper and television news program would now use. But, you know, actually, it is a name that had been used before. The original Night Stalker was Joseph D'Angelo, now known as the Golden State Killer. But he wouldn't be caught for decades Richard couldn't have been happier with his new moniker. It was how he saw himself. So similar to his favorite song, ACDC's The Night Prowler. It was magical that this name would be bestowed upon him. Satan surely must be happy and rewarding him. On August 6, 1985, Richard stole yet another Toyota. This one from a hotel parking lot in Burbank. He drove north on the freeway ending up 25 miles away from Los Angeles in Northridge. Choosing a random house, he walked right in through a set of unlocked sliding glass doors. Slinking into the bedroom of Chris Peterson and his wife, Virginia, he accidentally woke Virginia, who sat up and shouted, Who are you? Get out! Richard shot her under the right eye, the bullet going into her mouth and wedging in the back of her throat. Chris woke up, And Virginia managed to mumble to her husband, I think he shot me with a stun gun. Richard started laughing, then shot Chris, the bullet skidding against his right temple and knocking him back off the bed. He shot at Virginia again, but missed, at which point their five-year-old son woke up and started crying. Chris, summoning up all his strength, went into hero mode. He rose up, 
shot in the head and bleeding everywhere, and attacked Richard. Richard fired two shots at him, each missing, and the two began to fight. They wrestled for a moment, then Richard fled out the sliding glass door he'd come in through. It's nuts. Uh, apparently, Richard had bought really old ammunition that it's lost its potency, and that's why Virginia's shot was not fatal and Chris's, like, bounced off his head. But the incident shook Richie, who decided to go all out. This is crazy shit. He knew gun dealers from the Greyhound terminal, so he buys an Uzi, a gun that can shoot 30 rounds per second. He purchased three 30-clip magazines and taped them end-to-end so he could just flip them over when they ran out of bullets. He loads his Uzi into a backpack, brings both his twenty-two revolver and the twenty-five automatic, tucked into his pants, steals a car, and drives to Diamond Bar, a nice upscale neighborhood of expensive suburban homes. He pulls to a stop in front of the house of 27-year-old Sakini Abawath and 31-year-old Ayas Abawath and their two children, one 10 months old and the other three. Ayas was a hard-working computer programmer, and Sakina, his wife, was a beautiful medical technician. Again, he just walks right in through a set of unlocked sliding glass doors. For God's sake, lock your fucking sliding glass doors, people. As has become his modus operandi, Richard immediately executes Ayas with a bullet behind the left ear using the twenty-five automatic. He then handcuffed Sakina and blindfolded and gagged her while beating her and yelling curses, demanding she swear allegiance to Satan. He then disabled all the phones and ransacked the house. He then viciously sexually assaulted Sakina, and man, this is the really tough one here, really disturbing. Prepare yourself. So he actually suckles on her swollen breasts, drinking the milk from them as he rapes her. It's fucking really disturbing. Then her three-year-old son suddenly barged in on the scene. Richard tied the child up and put a pillowcase over his head. Feeling something was off, Richard went to the front window and peered through the blinds where he saw a police cruiser prowling the street slowly. Richard figured someone had heard the gunshot and called the police, so he got out the Uzi, prepared for a full-on shootout. Richard sat in the front window, watching the cruiser, ready to unleash a barrage of submachine gun fire if the cop gets out of his car. Shit is nuts, man. He's sitting there with an Uzi. Fuck. When the officer eventually drives off, Richard handcuffed Sakina to a doorknob, telling her that her husband was fine. He'd just punched him and knocked him out. Richard then walked out the front door with a pillowcase of stolen goods and slipped into the night and onto the freeway. Oh, man, this next part is just truly heartbreaking and incredibly dark and disturbing. Sakina's three-year-old son was able to get out of his bounds And Sakina, believing her husband had only been knocked unconscious, sent her son to try and wake up his dead father. The little boy was crying. He won't wake up, mommy. He won't wake up. And because she'd been gagged, Sakina was afraid her husband might have been gagged too. So she, afraid he may be choking or unable to breathe, told her son to reach into his mouth and pull out anything that might be in there. So this weeping three-year-old kid starts digging into his dead father's mouth, shouting, wake up, daddy, wake up. It's just, it's 
disturbing to the point where it makes your soul ache and hurt. Yeah, truly. Good grief. Which brings us to act three. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Diamond Bar was only a few minutes from homicide detective Gil Carrillo's house. The killings seemed to be getting closer and closer. His wife, Pearl, was freaking out at this point. She doesn't feel safe. She decides to take the kids and leave the area, moving in with her parents. She tells Gil that she'll come back once he's caught the Night Stalker. It's so crazy. It's like something you'd see in a movie, like an old-time Western where the bad outlaw comes to town and the sheriff's got to, like, summon up the bravery to, like, stop stop the outlaw to save his family. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, it really is. And Richard, is, it just kills me that, like, when you think of the audacity of just walking in and out and in and out of all these homes, just it's just nuts. The lock unlocked doors, too. Just like strolls right in through unlocked doors. Fuck, man. Right, right. You know, what's funny, too, is, you know, you said a couple minutes ago, lock your doors, Pete. Like, sometimes I think at night, because I do lock all my doors and windows at night, every night, like, without fail. And sometimes I have this sort of, like, weird counter thought of, like, if somebody wants to get in your house... Is this locked door really going to do anything? Because they could just punch through the wind. You know, like if somebody wants to give your house like glass breaks, like my house is not made of steel. No, no, very few people's are like somebody can always break a window. But there's something so true about so many killers and opportunists and just criminals and and robbers um, that, that just whatever's the path of least resistance so if your house is all locked up tight and somebody does have to break a window, it, it really is a deterrent because they're, they could potentially go down to the you know house next door where it's much easier and you don't have to do anything but slide open the sliding glass door. So, but yeah, it's all just terrifying stuff. Richard um, Chase, the, the uh, Sacramento vampire. I mean, he was he had schizophrenia and was fully delusional, but he would walk up to a house and try the try the front door. And if it was locked, he thought it was a sign that he shouldn't do that house. And then he would just go on to another house and try that one. And if it was locked, he'd go to the next one until he found an unlocked house. And then he'd go in and just unleash the worst hell on earth that you can imagine, you know? Crazy, crazy. So PSA, lock your doors, people. (laughs) And Uh, get a dog if you can. If you like dogs, they they definitely Oh, my God. My dog. No, sorry, Mirabelle, don't listen. But she's so useless. <laughs> she does not. She'll sleep through anything. Get a dog that uh, has uh, ears that at least perk up when they hear something. <laughs> uh, all right, well, back to our harrowing tale here. So one thing that Richard had always loved was the bus station. And the Greyhound station on Magnolia in North Hollywood was like a den of thieves, pimps, hustlers, pushers, vagrants, and toughs. They were the Night Stalker's peers and community. But the best of all about the Greyhound Station, if you ever feel the heat, you can just hop on a bus anytime and be carried off and away. He knew he was hot. He was all over the news. So he decided to get out of the fire and leave Los Angeles. And he jumped on a Greyhound bus headed north to San Francisco. Once in San Fran, he checked into room 315 of the Bristol Hotel on Mason, right in the heart of the Tenderloin District, an area notorious for open drug consumption and sales. 
It's it's a wild fucking place, man. You can see people smoking crack right there on the street. And from there, Richard wandered up Market Street, hitting all the sex shops and porn theaters, dumping quarters into the machine for hours. And then he cruised to Chinatown, where he started stalking a completely random Asian woman. When the woman entered the vestibule of a two-story residential building, he shoved his way in with her and beat her unconscious. And then he just ran off. He didn't even take anything. Just completely random. No reason. Utterly senseless cruelty and violence. This guy was truly a fucking maniac on the loose. So dangerous. He stole a Mercedes, broke into a house in the Marina District where no one was home, and he made off with jewelry and a VCR, which he took back to his hotel room in the Tenderloin. He had friends from El Paso living in San Pablo. He hit them up, hustled his hot jewelry, smoked weed and talked shit, living his dirtbag life of a thief and petty criminal, always on the prowl. He knew San Francisco well. He'd killed here before, and he'd soon kill here again. On August 18th, Richard Ramirez climbed through an open window and into the house of 66-year-old Peter Pan and his wife, 62-year-old Barbara Pan. Following a now familiar routine, Richard quickly executed Peter with a gunshot from his 25 automatic to the head, then terrorized, beat, bound, and assaulted Barbara and ransacked the home. He then shot Barbara in the head, though she'd lived. He ate a melon, vomited the melon up onto the floor. He masturbated onto the sofa and then carved a pentagram into the wall with the crudely written inscription, Jack the Knife, beside it. Richard then returned to the filth and squalor of the Tenderloin District, where he paid a sex worker to have sex with her feet. News of the Pan murders was huge. And word soon hit sheriff's homicide in Los Angeles. Carrillo and Salerno called detectives in San Francisco. Everything seemed to match their guy, the Night Stalker. Husband executed. Wife bound, assaulted, and tortured. A pentagram on the wall. Salerno asked, was there a red ring around the base of the bullet casings? San Francisco confirmed it. Red rings on the bullet casings. Bingo. Their guy was in San Francisco. Gill and Salerno jumped on the next flight north, surprised to see KNBC reporter Laurel Erickson on the plane as well. It's at this point that it's inadvertently leaked to the press that there's pentagrams written on the walls and a devil-worshipping element to the crimes, which brings in even more publicity. The police had been trying to keep that a secret, like they had kept secret the shoe prints, fearing if it got out, the killer would change his shoes. But the devil-worshipping elements just add gas to the fire of press coverage. There's a demonic, devil-worshipping serial killer on a rampage across California. The San Francisco Police Department immediately start a 60-man task force. They ask the mayor, Diane Feinstein, to have the city put up a reward. She asks to be briefed on everything, including all their evidence, so that she can be certain it's the same killer from Los Angeles. Diane Feinstein then puts up a $10,000 reward, but gives a press conference where she tells the world that police have matched the distinct 25 caliber bullets and casings, 
and that they know what kind of shoe he wears, an 11 and a half black avia. Everyone in law enforcement, from the sheriff's department in Los Angeles to the San Francisco police, are livid that Mayor Dianne Feinstein has revealed their closely guarded evidence to the public. But none more so than Detective Gil Carrillo and Sergeant Frank Salerno, who had painstakingly collected the evidence and put it all together. It was like a shot to the gut. After hearing the press conference on the radio, Richard Ramirez took off his shoes, carried them to the Golden Gate Bridge, and threw them off into the San Francisco Bay. He then headed back to Los Angeles in his stolen Mercedes, figuring they wouldn't expect him back there so soon. Back in L.A., he ditches the Mercedes and steals another Toyota, an orange station wagon that happened to be loaded with pamphlets for the Christian Vineyard Fellowship Church, as well as a big stack of Bibles. He drove out to Mission Viejo in Orange County, 76 miles north of Los Angeles, trolling the back streets, hunting quiet neighborhoods, ending up on Crisanta Drive, where he slipped out into the night with his 25 automatic, creeping along until he came to the house of 29-year-old computer wizard Bill Carnes and his 27-year-old fiance, Carol. The Night Stalker climbed in through a small back window and used a penlight to creep through the house. He slunk up to the sleeping couple, then unloaded three shots from his 25 into Bill's head. Carol ducked under the blankets, and Richard laughing, pulled them back, asking the terrified woman, You know who I am? No. Who are you? I'm the Night Stalker. Oh, God, no. Don't say God. Say Satan. Say you love Satan. I love Satan. Louder. I love Satan. I love Satan. Please don't kill me. Please, I love Satan. Richard tied her up, beat her, screamed in her face and terrorized her. She eventually gave him $400 in cash that she had hidden away. He was happy about that. So happy, he said to her, You know, this is all that saved you. This is all your life is worth. I would have killed you if it weren't for this money. Tell them the Night Stalker was here. I will. Say you love Satan. I love Satan. He laughed, then calmly walked out the front door, started up his stolen Toyota with a stack of Bibles and Christian pamphlets in it, and disappeared onto the freeway. Only this time, he'd been seen. A 13-year-old boy had seen the Toyota slowly trawling up the street with all its lights off earlier, a creepy-looking guy behind the wheel. When it came back again, the kid made a mental note of the license plate. Investigators find the Toyota abandoned, and are able to lift a partial print from the rearview mirror. And simultaneously, in San Francisco, a police informant by the name of Earl Gregg brings police a diamond bracelet he thinks may be tied to the Night Stalker. He says he got it from his wife's mother, who lived in San Pablo. She got it from her boyfriend, Armando Rodriguez. He got it from his friend from El Paso, whose name was Ricky, a Ricky who was known to have worn a black ACDC hat, a black members-only jacket with very bad teeth. 
The cops track down this Armando Rodriguez and ask him to tell them about this Ricky from El Paso. But the guy refuses to talk. He says there's a code among thieves. They don't snitch. So the cops proceed to beat the shit out of the guy. Something they're not ashamed of to admit to this day. After a good beating, the guy starts talking. Richard Ramirez, he tells them. The thief from El Paso with the bad teeth is named Richard Ramirez. Investigators in San Francisco relay the name to L.A. Sheriff's Homicide, who pull the files for anyone named Richard Ramirez. There's eight of them on record. Begin comparing the prints on them to the partial found on the stolen Toyota's rearview mirror. And bingo, they make a match. There he is. They look at his mugshot. Damn if he didn't look exactly like all the living witnesses described him. It was August 30th, 1985, the peak of a long, hot summer of carnage. The Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and the San Francisco Police Department decide to hold simultaneous press conferences where they release the name and photograph of the dreaded Night Stalker. Richard Ramirez, meanwhile, had gone to Arizona to visit his brother. It hadn't gone well, and Richard was on a Greyhound bus, completely oblivious, heading back to Los Angeles, when the news hit California of who the dreaded Night Stalker was. Richard's bus pulled in at 7.25 in the morning, the sky clear, the temperature already up into the 90s. Police, thinking there was a good chance he'd be fleeing Los Angeles, were posted up all over the departing area of the Greyhound station. But Richard was actually coming into the station from the arriving area, and he was able to walk right past all of them. And while they didn't see him, he actually noticed all the undercover cops and wondered what the hell they were up to. Richard casually walked to a liquor store on Southtown Avenue and bought a coffee and a pastry. As he was waiting for his change, an elderly Mexican woman at the back of the store started pointing at him and whispering, El Matador, El Matador, El Matador, which means killer in Spanish. At first, he was perplexed. What was going on? Then he looked down at the newsstand and saw his face on every single newspaper there. His heart dropped in his chest. He'd been made. His face and name were everywhere. He ran out of the store, the owner already on the phone with the police, and soon every patrol car in East L.A., as well as a few helicopters, were all speeding towards South Town Avenue. In a panic, Richard ducked into a yard, vaulted a six-foot fence, and headed towards the Santa Ana Freeway darting onto the eight-lane highway and nearly getting run over as cars whipped past at 70 miles per hour. He climbed up the opposite embankment, vaulting another fence, and hopped on the first bus passing by, where everyone, reading the morning paper with his face plastered across the front page, looked up in shock to see the killers standing before them. Bus passengers began to whisper and point. One man darted off and ran to a phone booth. There was nowhere to hide. Everyone in Los Angeles knew who he was. El Matador, the killer, the Night Stalker. Richard jumped off the bus and started running through a tough East L.A. Mexican neighborhood. The hot summer sun rising higher, beating down with an oppressive heat. People already on their porches and in their yards, 
all recognizing him as he passed by and shouting, El Matador, El Matador. Three Mexican teenagers began to trail him as helicopters buzzed overhead. Richard could hear sirens coming from all directions, getting closer and closer. He spotted a woman parked in front of a bakery in a running car. He ran up to her, screaming in Spanish that he needed her car, grabbing her by the arm and trying to pull her from the vehicle as she cried out to her boyfriend, who came running out of the bakery, joined by the neighboring barber. Richard gave up and bolted down an alley, leapt over a fence, and ended up in the yard of Luis Munez, who was barbecuing some ribs. Luis whacked him with a spatula a few times, demanding to know what he was doing, before Richard jumped over another fence to immediately see a running red Mustang just sitting there. He jumped in just as burly Faustino Pignon, who was repairing the car for his daughter, came out of the house with some tools. Faustino told him he wasn't taking this car, grabbing Richard by the neck and pulling the keys from the ignition. Richard fled again, bolted over yet another fence, and saw Angela de la Torre getting into her car, headed to the store to buy a piñata for her daughter's fourth birthday. As soon as she laid eyes on him, she knew who he was and began to scream, El Matador! El Matador! Richard punched Angela in the face, ripped the keys from her hands, and leapt into the car as neighbors began to pour from their houses. Then Angela's husband, Manuel, came running up with a metal bar, hitting Richard in the head as he tried to start the car. Richard leaped from the car and began to run down the street, a crowd now gathered behind him, giving chase, screaming, El Matador! El Matador! Richard turned and hissed snake-like at them, sticking his tongue out demonically the women all stopping to cross themselves and mumble prayers as the men waved their fists. Manuel then darted up and cracked Richard right over the head with the metal bar, knocking him to the ground, daring him to get back up again as the crowd of tough, hardworking, blue-collar Mexicans encircled him. First police officer on the scene basically rescued Richard Ramirez from the angry mob. For the rest of his life, Richard Ramirez would ponder and lament how it was a community of his own people that took him down. Fellow Latinos cursing at him in Spanish, hitting him, spitting at him, making the sign of the cross, and that they very well may have killed him, while it was the police whom he despised and hated who actually rescued him. The irony was too bitter for him. The East Los Angeles neighborhood was technically in the sheriff's jurisdiction, so Richard was their prisoner. But because of the size of the growing crowd, LAPD decided to whisk Richard away to their Hollenbach police station and transfer him to sheriff's custody there. Detectives Carrillo and Salerno headed right to the station to get their prisoner. They finally had him. The night stalker had been captured. By the time they arrived at the police station, it was surrounded with people. A crowd of over a thousand had gathered, climbing up on fences to get a better view, many of them chanting, Give him to us! Give him to us! When Gil Carrillo and Frank Salerno introduced themselves to Richard Ramirez, he knew exactly who they were, that they'd been hunting him. He told Frank Salerno he remembered him from the Hillside Stranglers case. Richard had to be transported to the county jail, because of the mobs of people gathering, they used a motorcade of four patrol cars, eight motorcycle cops, and a helicopter. Crowds lined the streets as they passed, 
People were celebrating. They didn't have to live in fear anymore. A collective sigh went up all over Los Angeles and beyond. The Night Stalker was caught. Parties and festivities would go on all night long. But there was another element Gil Carrillo noticed amongst the crowd. Females who seemed to be enamored with Richard. As they drove along towards the county jail, a woman standing in the bed of a pickup truck lifted her shirt up, exposing her breasts to Richard. It was a phenomenon that would only get wilder and stranger. Uh, and way grosser. <laughs> Act four, Death Row Romeo. Women obsessed with killers was nothing new in 1985. There were lots of curious women at the Bundy trial, anxious to get a look at him. But with Ramirez, it seemed different. There were more of them, and they were more intense, more sexual, more brazen and bold. From his very first court appearance when he was being arraigned and preliminary charges were being made, there were throngs of women in the audience. There because they found him attractive and were curious about him. In jail, Richard was inundated with letters. There were female admirers who thought he was innocent and wanted to help him, and fans who approved of his awful crimes. And they're just plain curious. There were women sending him nude pictures, even women begging him to mail them his sperm so they could have his baby. Richard, of course, loved all of this and, and was surprised. When he had been a free man, women wouldn't even talk to them. He had to pay them to have sex with him. And now, now they were throwing themselves at him. He'd arrange to have jailhouse visits from them, and they'd wear no underwear and lift up their short skirts, giving him a peek as he leered, a hand in his pocket, masturbating. Ugh, so, so <laughs> fucking gross and so disturbing and so inexplicable. Ugh. Richard, who had been ducking his head from the press, hiding his face during court appearances, acting shy and ashamed, now felt empowered and proud and decided to take control and change his demeanor. They were going to convict him anyway. Might as well give them a show. When Richard went back to the courtroom, he was like a different person. No longer shy, he was openly defiant and hostile. Growling, sneering, flaring his nostrils, clenching his fists, shuffling his feet like a boxer, rattling his chains. Those images of him doing that at the court are just so fucking scary. He looks like a wild animal ready to pounce and just this evil in his eyes. But Richard did not want to go to trial. He didn't want to sit there in a chair like an exhibit at the zoo. All for a conclusion he knew was coming regardless. A guilty verdict and death. He just wanted to plead guilty and get it all over with. What was the point of a trial when they had so much evidence? They had fingerprints, eyewitness testimony, the bullets with the red circles around the primer, which had been found in his backpack, dental records tying him to the stolen car, victim's jewelry that had been traced back to him. His goose was cooked. But he continued to maintain his innocence to his family, especially his sister Ruth and his mother and father. He told them he was innocent, but the corrupt LAPD and sheriff's department had to pin it on someone, and he was their patsy. His family, believing in his innocence, demanded that he plead not guilty. Reluctantly, he went along with them. They also convinced him to fire his public defender, Alan Adeshek, 
and hired Daniel and Arturo Hernandez, who had connections to El Paso and their family and were of Mexican heritage and would be able to understand him better. Richard had no problem with firing his public defender, who not only wouldn't let him plead guilty, but had ceased all visitors. So Arturo and Daniel Hernandez, not related at all, despite sharing the same last name, were brought in as his defense attorneys, though they were woefully inexperienced, neither having tried a murder case before. Los Angeles detectives went to El Paso and questioned Richard's family. His sister Ruth told them that he often gave her gifts. She gave police the cheap costume jewelry and trinkets that he'd given her over the years. Detectives then looked at her, stone-faced, and asked if she'd ever received a pair of brown, human eyes from him. She was struck silent and just stared at them, open-mouthed. On October 24th, Richard was brought back to the courtroom again, this time for the judge to rule whether the Hernandezes could serve as Richard's attorneys. Ruth, Robert, and Reuben were there in the spectator section, as well as the growing number of infatuated women, many of them dressed in black. The judge ruled the Hernandezes could serve as legal counsel, at which point Richard raised his large left hand to reveal a perfectly drawn inverted pentagram on it. Under it, the numbers 666 from the Book of Revelations. The courtroom went wild with surprised gasps and shouts, the judge banging on the gavel for order, Richard shouting, Hail Satan! before he was led away. He was soon led back in, laughing, and declared himself not guilty. And that's the image that the world will forever remember Richard Ramirez by, holding up his hand with that pentagram drawn on it, completely unrepentant, a true monster. And this event would set the tone for the whole trial. Richard laughing and acting both guilty and uncooperative, making a mockery of the not guilty defense while his inexperienced lawyers struggled to defend him. The Hernandezes had been able to get the child molestation charges dropped, which is what Richard really wanted. It was huge for him. He was fine being known as a devil-worshipping murderer, but being known as a child molester in prison can make life quite difficult. Since Richard kept nodding off and napping during court proceedings, which was deemed disrespectful, his lawyers got him a large pair of Porsche sunglasses to wear so he could shut his eyes and doze unbeknownst. He played these shades up to the max, strutting like a rock star, rocking defiantly in his chair, grinning at his female admirers. And his bizarre fan base of weird women was just growing and growing. There was Doreen, who thought he was innocent and there to show her support and offer help, but most were there because they said he turned them on sexually by how dangerous and deadly he was. One woman saying that just seeing him can cause her to have a spontaneous orgasm. Most of them wore all black and filled the back aisles, calling themselves the women in black and being dubbed by the press as the Ramirez groupies. I've actually done a bunch of research on women who love serial killers and dangerous criminals. It's really fascinating. Uh, I think we should do an episode maybe sometime on the phenomenon and like its evolution because it's actually bigger than ever right now. If you go on TikTok or Tumblr, you'll find these huge ser serial killer groupie communities. And it's, it's a pretty interesting and bizarre. 
makes my head want to explode. <laughs> uh, there is a lot of diversity. Women who are attracted to and obsess over accused murderers are not all alike. In fact, their psychologies are quite different. Many view themselves as motherly figures and believe the person to be innocent, like Carol Ann Boone, who would become Ted Bundy's wife and have his child. These women see a little boy that is in need of help, and they feel only they can help and change them. Doreen Leoy was like this with Richard Ramirez. At 41, she was older than most of the other women who attended the Night Stalker trial every day. She was a devout Christian and a virgin who felt Richard was completely innocent and dedicated her life to him. Eventually, Doreen started helping him with all his paperwork, telling the press he's innocent, fighting for his cause, releasing statements, becoming his press secretary. And there are also women who are attracted to men in prison because they like being romantically involved with someone in prison, a person that can't cheat on them, that can't beat them, that can't interfere with their lives, that they don't have to have sex with or clean up after or cook for, and someone who can't hurt them. Most of these women are abuse survivors, and they still want a man in their lives, but want the control and safety afforded by that man being locked up. They may not be able to be physically together, but in the end, the women still feel needed, wanted, desired. They are fulfilled with the relationship, giving and providing, yet they take no actual risks. Then there's the purely sexual element. Women who are physically turned on and sexually attracted to murderers and rapists. Women who fall into the hybristophilia category. Hybristophilia, which the American Psychological Association defines as a sexual interest in and attraction to those who commit crimes, is derived from the Greek words hybrisian, which means to commit an outrage against someone, and philo, which means having a strong affinity or preference for. These are the women that know he's guilty and say that's what attracts them to him. They usually have incredibly dark fantasies of rape or joining him in his kills. And this is where it gets really bizarre. Women who say they would leave their windows unlocked at night and lay there hoping and fantasizing that he would come in and assault them. He's getting flooded with letters, photos of naked women in lurid poses. And Richard is able to barter these photographs for cigarettes and other amenities. <sighs> I have so many things to say. I don't know if I should say any of them. <laughs> I get that people have like weird sexual fantasies, but this is just so weird to me. And plus it's like, I think of what the survivors must think when that like, yeah, like I in feel like, a right. Like a survivor, like if I was in that courtroom and I had survived exactly what they were fantasizing, it would like, how do you not turn around and like, I would just want to punch these women in the face and be like, the thing, ah, it just, it blows my mind. Like the thing that probably ruined these people's lives. I mean, these, the people that survived probably had PTSD and like, who knows? Oh, yeah. Like such oh, yeah. long standing psychological effects from this. And like, you want it to happen to you? Like, it's, I don't know, man. I mean, it's one thing if you like have a weird sexual fantasy and you want to like, Think about it in your room alone. Cool. Fantasies but like, are fantasies. but Right. But like to come to the courtroom and outwardly profess your support of this person who had actually done these terrible things is not the same thing to me as like, like personally pursuing a, a, a kinky whatever. 
Yeah. It's so, so yeah, this monster becomes a sex symbol. Supposedly even Madonna thought he was hot. And then I also always think of like, do you not remember the dozens and dozens of reports of his disgusting breath and soggy wet leather smell? Like (laughs) it sounds like he like stopped taking a shower and never did again. Like it, that yeah. that's kind of how it reads when you read like the report. So yeah, so fucking gross. Ugh. And then when you think more about the Madonna thing, actor Sean Penn, who was married to Madonna at the time, was serving time in the LA jail for assaulting a reporter. And since he had to be kept in protective custody, he was put in a jail cell next to Richard. When Madonna visited Sean, she asked, who's that good looking guy? <laughs> when Sean informed her, that it was the infamous Night Stalker. She said he gave her goosebumps, but she'd really love to meet him. To which Sean said, I don't think so. Sean Penn and Richard Ramirez exchanged autographs. Penn later saying that Richard was like a, quote, animal in heat, and that he masturbated nonstop in his cell to photographs of his victims, which he hung on his walls with toothpaste. Who the hell gave him photographs of his victims? Like I'm he's allowed to have the g- files for his because he's a, it's it's the you're allowed to have when you're when <sighs> you're in going to trial. You know he, he's throwing the trial. You're allowed to have all the files and look at all the evidence. Jesus Christ! I know it's fucked up, but I and mean, so many women were you coming have to, to visit. give him. You know you have to let him have it. It's it's the double edged sword. You know I mean you can't like deprive people of, of the evidence but it's like fuck did you really you, that's what you're gonna do with this it's, oh uh. my god and so many women were coming to visit richard that the county jail had to put limits on the number of visitors he was allowed everyone from porn stars to librarians exotic dancers and devil worshipers to lonely secretaries and bored housewives since visitors were allowed to bring food this this is gnarly right here Richard would have his groupies bring zucchinis and and bananas and use them as sex toys as he sat there watching. And one woman said about it. I'm going to read this in an incredibly monotone voice because I do not support any of it. (laughs) He'd get me so hot. The fact that he was so dangerous and so close yet couldn't hurt me got me excited as soon as I sat down for a visit. It was like the beauty and the beast kind of thing. You <laughs> stupid idiot. <laughs> that was, well, has she read The Beauty and the Beast? Right. About like, a man cursed to look like a monster, though he's actually kind and sensitive. Richard Ramirez looks like a person, but he's actually a fucking monster. It's the exact opposite of this story. Uh, one woman who was a married 30-year-old housewife from Washington State who wrote him 20 letters in one week alone and drove all the way to California just to visit him. She said, he is so good looking and I loved his big hands. The thrill and danger of going to see him made it all worth it because to me, it was like a dream come true to face one of the world's most feared men. It was literally like he was putting a spell on these women. It's fucking crazy. And crazily enough, who should fall under this spell? But one of the actual jury members, Cynthia Hayden. And on Valentine's Day, she actually sent him a cupcake with I love you written on it. A woman on the jury sending him a cupcake on Valentine's Day saying I love you. 
And she'd sit and stare at him, making these goo-goo eyes. And he'd make sad puppy dog eyes back at her, peering over his Porsche sunglasses. Ugh, she'd later say, The truth of the matter is, I fell in love with him the first time I saw him. I know it's nuts and everything, but I couldn't help it. It was just one of those things. She'd even wonder if he'd put some kind of spell on her. Which, like, did she get removed from the jury? No, it's just one of those things. How is she not it's removed from the jury? It's just one of those things, jury? Krista. How is she not <laughs> removed from the jury? Where is she now? I'm writing oh, her a letter. I think she's still around. She might still be around. I mean, come on uh, to the show, Cynthia hated, <laughs> and tell me why. And if you are ashamed of yourself, because you should be. On October 3rd, the jury returned with their unanimous verdicts guilty on all 19 counts, each with a penalty of death. And our friend Cynthia Hayden, she was crying and mouthing the words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to him as the verdict of death was read. Oh, back home in El Paso, when his mother Mercedes heard the verdict, she was kneeling in front of a white candle praying and said it should be Satan who died, not her little Richie. At the sentencing, Richard asked to speak and said, You don't understand me. You're not expected to. You're not capable. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells in all of us. I don't know why I'm even wasting my breath, but what the hell? For what is said of my life, there have been lies in the past and there will be lies in the future. I don't believe in the hypocritical, moralistic dogma of this so-called civilized society. I need not look beyond this courtroom to see all the liars, the haters, the killers, crooks, the paranoid cowards. Truly the trematodes of the earth. You maggots make me sick. Hypocrites, one and all. We are all expendable for a cause. No one knows that better than those who kill for policy. Clandestinely or openly, as do the governments of the world, which kill in the name of God and country. I don't need to hear all of the society's rationalizations. I've heard them all before. Legions of the night, night breed, repeat not the errors of the night prowler and show no mercy. Oof. Richard then received his 19 death sentences. He was flown by helicopter to San Quentin to sit in death row with, among others, freeway killers Randy Kraft and William Bonin, who we covered and talked about how they loved playing cards with each other. But his stay there was short because he still had to go to trial in San Francisco for the pan assault and murder charges. And in February of 1990, he was moved to the San Francisco County Jail. Former juror Cynthia Hayden started speaking out on radio shows, saying the trial in Los Angeles wasn't fair because Richard's attorneys were inept and put on a terrible defense, saying they should have presented a defense of innocence by reason of demonic possession, as he'd obviously been possessed when he committed the crimes. Richard started talking to the former juror on the phone. Cynthia says she thought he was shy and funny. She told him she was sorry she found him guilty and sentenced him to death. Richard told her he loved her, to which she replied, you don't even know what love is. Richard agreed, saying, I don't. I had no one on the outside. But do you love me? Yes, Richard, 
I do love you. His former juror. It's insane, and it boils my blood. Cindy began visiting, often running into an angry and insolent Doreen in the waiting room, who was still running errands and making announcements for Richard. Doreen called Cynthia a low-down, hypocritical, Benedict Arnold bitch. And Cynthia even brought her parents to the prison to meet him, which is crazy. (laughs) Come meet my new boyfriend, Mom and Dad. I met him when I sentenced him to 19 counts of death. And all the other groupies were now flocking to the San Francisco jail, causing scenes. One woman they just referred to as the bimbo would brazenly challenge Doreen and Cynthia to fight her, screaming in their faces, He's mine! Stay away from him or I'll break your face! Cindy Hayden went so far as to get a private detective license so she could accompany his lawyers and have private visits with Richard. When left alone in the room, they kissed and fondled each other, and she rubbed his crotch with her foot, which he was into, his weird foot fetish thing. Okay, just to reiterate, this is a fucking former juror who found him guilty of 19 death penalty counts, and now she's making out with him in prison what in the actual fuck i have just so much i can't even i just can't even to wrap your head around right doreen meanwhile is now richard's former secretary and press manager taking care of various correspondences passing messages on to his lawyers she'd put money on his commissary and he'd call her collect and she'd play him acdc albums over the phone and these women are all showing up at the jail like Kelly Marquez, a porn star, and Christine Lee, this wild blonde woman. And they're threatening each other, stalking each other, calling each other on the phone. Oh, the tabloid television show A Current Affair did a show called Death Row Romeo about all the drama. And it got so crazy that San Francisco shipped him back to San Quentin, which was just across the bay, for security reasons. It was a big blow. In San Quentin, Richard had no access to the phone. He was locked up nearly 24 hours a day, and visits were exceedingly limited. But the forever faithful Doreen moved to San Francisco so that she could be near him and visit regularly, sometimes waiting as long as 20 hours to get a 30-minute visit through glass and over the phone. And Doreen's devotion paid off. Out of all the wild women, the porn stars and devil worshippers, housewives, an actual former juror, Richard chose Doreen to be his wife. Oh, my God. Ugh. I can't help but think of, you know, five years old in 1985, that little that little boy who had to fish in his father's mouth to try to Ugh. see if he was choking on something. Like, how old? So in 1996, five, so, like, do these poor survivors see that Motherfucker got married on the 3rd of October, 1996. I mean, it's a smart move for Richard. Doreen thought he was innocent, would never abandon him. She worked as his secretary. She was a practicing Roman Catholic and a virgin, proudly wearing white at the wedding. She was motherly, caring, older. She said if he was executed, she'd kill herself as well because she couldn't live without him and she'd never leave him. But eventually... Doreen did leave Richard. In 2009, when DNA eventually linked Ramirez to the killing of nine-year-old Mei Leung, 
Doreen felt she could no longer stand by his innocence. DNA evidence, it's, it's pretty irrefutable. And Richard's guilt was too much for Doreen to take. Finally coming to the realization that he was in fact guilty, Doreen filed for divorce. This to me is also crazy. Like she's obviously off her rocker because there was lots of irrefutable evidence. Like yeah. how did she justify all of the other evidence? The eyewitness testimonies, the shoes, the jeweler, like every, <laughs> like, well, you'd think if she was that crazy that when the DNA evidence came out, she would just say, oh, it's faulty. Like her family completely abandoned her. Like her family was like, you're cut off. We don't want anything to do it. And she had a twin sister. She's a twin. This is weird. She ruined her life for this guy. It's another life he he ruined, you know? Yeah, but not his fault. Right. Like, I mean, well, and Richard quickly moved right on and was soon engaged to a 23 year old writer. (laughs) But Richard Ramirez was a very sick man. And on July 7th, 2013, he died of B-cell lymphoma complicated by chronic hepatitis C at the Marin General Hospital. Good riddance to worse than bad fucking rubbish. Hmm. And that's the story of the Night Stalker. We hope you enjoyed it in all of its horror and just gruesome details and wild and crazy aftermath. It's terrifying and disturbing and a lot of heroics too. Crazy, you know, survivors and, and the the absolute dedication of the um, all the police officers, really, but but the two detectives in in particular. It's such an iconic story, you know, and it's so American, and it's also like so 1980s. You really get that 80s vibe to it, and uh, yeah, that image with him with, with holding up his hand with the pentagram on it. It's just it's like part of our culture now, you know. It's so yeah, weird. yeah, it's very like I, you can picture it. Um, picture it right in your mind. Um, yeah, 1985 was the year I was born. So it's like crazy to think that all this was going on in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, God. I, it makes me, I mentioned this too before, Matt, but it makes, I, I do want to watch the um, the Netflix Night Stalker documentary again. I thought it was a really good one. It's pretty fun. But I just wish that, I mean, I won't, it's like this trend to focus on the victims and focus on the police. Which I, I appreciate. I understand that. I, and I understand that the victims need to be respected and like, talked about. But they just, they really don't talk about him at all. You know what I mean? Like, they, they talk about him probably like maybe 10 minutes. They give like yeah. his whole life story, you know, like out of hours and hours. But uh, yeah, it's still, yeah. it's really fun. It's really neat. Because that's a that's a series, do. right? It's not just mm-hmm. a, you know, one part. Yeah. It's like four hours, I think. Okay. Four or five hours. But it's just all about the, the Gil and salerno right right well they're they're very larger than life kind of guys so i thought they were worth uh focusing on too yeah they're um but yeah i definitely look forward to uh i've been i've been really living for when we post these on facebook all the comments that come in i don't often um have as much time as i would like to respond to them but i do see them all and i really appreciate all the time that people spend listening and and then commenting and, and giving their thoughts and opinions Hell yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And you know we want to hear from you. So if you have a case you think we should cover, if you think we got something wrong, if you just want to say hi, drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. 
That's MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com. We will see you next week with some another really wild story that you're going to love. Bye. <laughs>